Welcome everyone to Season 2, Episode 3 of the On Path Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Cheryl Manolo, Principal Software Engineering Lead at Microsoft. Cheryl leads a team of six engineers who build and deploy customer solutions on Azure. Cheryl's path to where she is today wasn't the most straightforward. In this conversation, we chat about the challenges she faced growing up in the Philippines, Nigeria, the US, and Austria. Everything from not having money to buy food and living without indoor plumbing, to having to learn math in a foreign language, then fight to go to university. Cheryl not only ended up pursuing higher studies, she started a PhD in physics at the Technical University in Vienna. Through her research, she learned to code and soon found herself drawn more to coding than her physics research. This led her first to start her own company and then eventually join Microsoft. Her story is one of overcoming adversity and uncertainty throughout her early life, and I personally find her path to be very inspiring. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome, Cheryl, to the On Path podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me, Vijay. I thought a good starting point might be challenges with tech. This interview was originally scheduled more than a month ago, but I keep my questions uh, usually on Notion. And the service happened to be down the day we, we planned to do the interview. And so we had to reschedule. And I was just wondering with you know your many years of experience, if you have any memorable tech fail or demo fail story. Oh, um, maybe too many that I can actually focus on one. <laughs> but um, now that we're totally reliant on technology, of course, uh, these things happen. I had a demo fail once when I could not connect to the online service that I wanted to. I was demoing um, authentication on, on Azure, I, I believe. It was not a failure of Azure. So I must say it was my network connection that did not work. And I was demoing in front of about 150, an audience of 150 people who were watching. And then I, I could not connect, right? So this is something that you cannot do offline because you need Azure, let's say Azure portal for it to demonstrate it. And well, I could not redo it, of course, because uh, the demo time was over. And then uh, that's it. Well, the customers, uh, or the people, the audience said that, okay, these things happen. <laughs> the network could be down uh, and they were basically fine with that. But uh, maybe a learning uh, for the future uh, before doing that uh, type of live demos is to have a recording in the background that you can actually show the recording instead of demoing live. Uh, it was a longer time ago. Yeah. yeah, and I find in these kind of situations, people are very understanding. You have been very understanding with me, so thank you for that. And the learning for me has also, of course, been to to have an offline backup, which I do now. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, that's always a good learning to have, right? Um, that's what we do as well. Uh, when Whenever we demo in front of an audience, currently we we record as a team because we're de- demoing quite, quite frequently, actually. So every week after we, of course, worked on features and we want to show those features in a retro demo session every week, we record them before actually performing them. Yeah, makes sense. So Cheryl, you have a really fascinating story and childhood growing up. And I thought maybe we can rewind all the way to the start. I know uh, you spent your early life in the Philippines relocating frequently. And I'd love to hear what are some of your lasting memories of that time? 
I was very young. Let's say that was my childhood up to seven years old, meaning that I have some impressions. However, they're quite blurry, right? Uh, mostly they're impressions of landscapes or how I felt when I changed school again. One thing that it taught me was to be resilient to change, let's say. As a child, it's, it's easier to, to make friends again. Of course, if you change schools, but it depends if, if um, the others are open to it or not. And the same, of course, applies to me. I have to be open to making new friends as well. And luckily for me, it worked out when I was a child. And um, I remember the landscapes that, uh, that had a lasting impression on me, because uh, at one point we were in, in Manila. So this is a, a huge um, city, uh, our capital city in the Philippines. It was quite busy there, right? Um, that was the lasting impression on me. And then at another point, um, we relocated to, to the more mountainous area. So it was like cold there. Hard to imagine in the Philippines to find a place where um, you have pine trees and it, it's actually cold. That was also very impressive for me as a child to see that landscape change and climate change as well. Yeah. And at another point, we were near to the beaches instead of the mountains. So uh, I really like that time as well, even though it's hard to, to, to change, right? Um, even, even for a child, this is something that you, I learned to deal with. Yeah. Because it was always sad to lose your old friends and then you gain your friends again, and then you lose them again. Yeah. And it's interesting because in, in some ways, those were all still relatively minor changes compared to the very big move you made at the age of eight to Nigeria. I know your your mom was pursuing a teaching opportunity there. And in an article of yours that I read, you mentioned you have very fond memories of Nigeria. So yeah, talk us a bit through that move. What was most challenging? What was easier than expected? First of all, it was the first time that I boarded an airplane. It was very impressive uh, to fly from, from Manila to Amsterdam, where we had a, a short stay, and then from Amsterdam to Nigeria. So the stay in Amsterdam was basically just a stopover, right? And it was the first time that I was in Europe when I was um, yeah, between seven and eight. And the, the people in Amsterdam are quite fair and, and tall. <laughs> and, I was, and I was a child, right? And I thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> <laughs> the people are really, really tall. And yeah. when I said before that I was in a mountainous area in the Philippines uh, where it was cold, I couldn't anticipate the cold that I uh, experienced in Amsterdam because it was winter time. And uh, I think the clothing that I brought with me from the Philippines was not the right clothing as well. And it was really, really cold. I was freezing. And then after, let's say, two days in Amsterdam, we, we flew further to Nigeria. And again, that was a um, totally different uh, impression on me with regard to the climate and also with regard to the people. We didn't stay long in Lagos so we because we um, basically from arriving to Lagos um, we actually traveled to Benue State in Nigeria which is in the north. And you were there a couple of years and so so how was how were those years? Yes it was hard so we were living on campus uh, my mom was teaching uh, mathematics in a high school in Benue State uh, that was her three-year contract with Nigeria. And um, we had a small house there with a toilet that was outside the house. And it was not, you know, the toilets that we have right now where you have running water, you flush, and that's it. It was, it was a hole in the ground. 
we did have a, let's say, a, a bathroom, but we didn't have running water. So we had to get the water into uh, the bathroom and the water that we drank, uh, we basically cooked before. Right? It was a very interesting time uh, from that perspective. And uh, we had a small garden as well, which was good uh, because the, my mom sometimes didn't receive her salary monthly, but it took time. Maybe after three months, she then received her salary again. So it was not a re really a regular payment. And of course, it's hard to, to, to save and then cater for the three months where you, where you don't get your salary. And at some point, she was really afraid that we were, were going to starve because we, we didn't have um, any money to buy groceries anymore or go to the market. But let's say the community really cared for each other. Then she had colleagues who still had food or they had a farm and we got uh, several goods from them, let's say, to, to bring us through these hard times when she had a salary. And uh, there I, I learned the value of community and people helping each other. And in general, it was a, a great time because there were really, uh, I learned to know very um, nice people and also people who care for each other. Yeah. They, and there was something that sparked your mom to send you to your aunt in California. So another big move. What what, what sparked that move? Uh, it was malaria. So um, I, I got sick. Uh, I was not vaccinated against malaria. I, I believe back then there were no vaccinations yet. I was vaccinated against cholera, against smallpox um, and other things, but uh, against malaria, well, you just got sick and recovered again. So mm -hmm. I, I got sick. I had a very high fever, 40 degrees. I, I thought I was hallucinating a lot at that time. And my mom decided that she it's better for me to, to, to be in the US instead of Nigeria, because if, if I get malaria the second time or a third time, it could end badly for me, for my health because uh, normally the malaria stays in the system for 10 years, right? And um, if your immune system is uh, low, again, you, you don't even have to get bitten by, by a mosquito that has malaria. If, you, if your immune system is low, then yeah, you could get sick again. So, so you decided to send me away to my aunt. Of course, she flew there with me. I didn't fly alone. And then uh, saw to it, uh, made sure that I'm fine with my aunt, and then flew back to Nigeria to continue her contract. Yeah. And how was that transition going from someplace with like no running water to California? Oh. <laughs> that was a culture clash. <laughs> yeah. That was a totally different world. Let's say uh, technology in the US and the house that I lived in, it was, it was like a 180 degrees turn. Um, my aunt uh, was was living in a very nice house. Um, it was quite big. You had a huge refrigerator with a nice machine, and I was just full of wonders. I had I had my room. I have I had a television. I didn't have that in Nigeria. I read lots of books uh, and basically also played games with my mom. So it was a totally different and uh, new world uh, for me there. And how did you keep in touch with your mom? Through letters. So we didn't have. We didn't have a telephone in our house in Nigeria, so basically it was it was um, letters, and she she came back to the U.S. after a few months as well to see if I'm fine, and then went back to Nigeria again. Wow! And then another move to Austria. Oh yes. At the age of ten. 
<laughs> yeah, by then she was finished with her contract. Uh, so her contract ended and concluded in Nigeria. We actually went back to the Philippines for a short time. And uh, there she was thinking about what to do next, what her next um, career move would be, because she didn't want to stay in the teaching or in the uh, educational system in the Philippines. Salaries are not really high. And she thought about other possibilities, uh, one of which was um, my aunt was living in Austria and asked her if uh, she wanted to come to Austria and live with her there at first, of course, um, help her out with the with, uh, kids because she just had a new child and then try if she can find work in Austria. And so we were allocated to Austria. I didn't know any word of German. <laughs> and uh, it was hard in the beginning, of course, uh, because for me, well, I spoke in English in Nigeria, I spoke in English in the US, of course, and then coming to Austria where the school system is in German uh, and you had uh, one subject, which is called English, and there you speak English, right? Um, the school system is such that um, you have, let's say at, at that age, so I was 10, uh, you decide to go to either gymnasium, a school system or a school that enables you to go to college or to university afterwards. And then um, there's a um, school called Hauptschule, which enables you to choose which job you'd like to do afterwards. So, it, it, But it doesn't enable you to go to university. So it's a, a more of a, a school that prepares you for practical work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that was also a decision point in the beginning because um, I could not speak German. Well, both schools required German. Um, so the, the initial idea was to send me to Hochschule because the, the bar for passing grades there is not that high. Yeah. And the bar was much higher in a gymnasium. And um, because of uh, my lacking German knowledge, they decided they wanted me to put into Hochschule. However, my, my aunt and my mom said that, you know, Cheryl could potentially go to university afterwards. Um, we'll send her to gymnasium. And um, they really, they really fought, fought for that. And, and I know that you were also very determined to study physics, but that they were some points of discouragement. And how, how did you get through that? Like what, what kept your resolve strong? It was my, my interest and my passion for it, <laughs> I'd say. Um, in Nigeria, well, I told you before, right, um, I, I read a lot of books and one of these books uh, was, was really something, a huge science compendium <laughs> for children, of course. I was really very passionate about the content. Uh, I was reading it um, the whole time in Nigeria. And I, uh, so the time in Nigeria with my mom uh, reading this book and um, also the time that we spent on math games, it kept sparking my interest in tech, uh, mathematics and, and STEM. Uh, my, my mom knew that I would love to study math or physics afterwards. That's why she fought also hard uh, for me to be enabled to, to do that later on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, it, it was well worth it because you not only studied physics, you actually went on to do a PhD in physics. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't imagine doing doing something different, even though at some point um, I would have loved to study arts as well. Uh, this is really the second field that I'm still doing now is I'm painting, right? Painting uh, with, with oil colors um, and now I'm airbrushing uh, a lot as well. 
it's also, let's say, my, the second pillar of, of, of my interest uh, lied in arts, and uh, the first one was, was physics. And when I was um, 17, going into 18, when, when it's important to decide, okay, what to study, um, I had my portfolio to, to start studying art. And then in the end, I thought that um, the uh, larger challenge would, me, uh, would be for me to study physics. So I, I went in that direction. So at this point, you were speaking German fluently, and yeah, yeah. you you felt ready for the, the challenge of taking on a, a PhD. Yeah, when you well, when you're when you're a child, um, it's easier to learn a new language, right? Um, so it, that was that actually went fast. I was able to speak German fluently after, let's say, a half year year within gymnasium, first yeah. year. You're you're also immersed in that environment, and there's a, a lot of incentives. Yes. That's true. Well, there was no other choice, right? Um, because everything, even math, is in German. So if you have uh, text examples, um, even though um, you know the logic, you still have to read the text and understand the text. My my uh, school colleagues, also my school friends, helped me a lot uh, because they were very interested to speak in English. So and uh, we had a lot of uh, really fun conversations also in the beginning. I was uh, answering in English and they were talking in German to me. Yeah, you decided to move away from academia. Uh, what sparked that move away? That's a very good question. I was um, determined to finish my PhD. And I was um, two and a half years into my PhD already when I uh, decided to uh, go more into the direction of information technology because um, back then we were exposed to code of course, coding, because uh, we had to gather the data from our measurements and connect to devices, you know, like a, um, an early form of IoT, basically. Mm -hmm. Only back then it was um, over the um, serial line RS-232 and not uh, over IoT of an Azure. So that, that was um, uh, like a, another spark that happened, right? Uh, you had to write, a, write, to write code. Uh, back then, I wrote in ANSI C. Uh, you had to connect um, to an interface and gather the data. Then you had to evaluate the data, perform some analysis. And in, in all of these cases, you had to write code because, um, well, there were tools, of course, that you could use. Mm, but from, um, with regard to the program connecting to the interface, gathering the data, there was no, um, let's say, standard program for that or standard application for that that you could use. So this was my first exposure to, let's say, coding within university. And uh, the second um, was, uh, there's, an un let's say, an underlying theory backing that experiment, right? And it's, um, the question is if, if the theory applies to, to the experiment or not. To, to be able to compare experiment with theory, you had to had a numerical version of that theory. So uh, like having a, an equation is something abstract. Um, like if you draw a line, then you have something numerical. Because of that, I had to um, had a numerical version of or numerical expression of um, the equations that I was using. And I also had to write a, a program for that. And I found out, wow, uh, this is a whole new world um, because 
developing a theory in, in physics takes time and it takes years and even proving that um, that theory is something that you could use um, to describe something in nature takes an even longer time because you have to perform the experiment or you have to wait until someone performs, performs the experiment for you yeah. and coding was very rewarding you know you, you code and then you see the result after yeah. time uh, and um I thought that, uh, oh, wow, I'd like to explore this more. I'll, let's say, stop or pause my PhD. And then, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll found a company with my uh, previous, let's say, co-worker um, in, in university. So he was um, also finishing his, his diploma studies there. And uh, we founded the company. Yeah. You realized you like coding. You could have just gone out and found a coding job, but <laughs> instead you decided to, yeah. to create a company. Yeah. <laughs> it was um, maybe a bit stupid <laughs> because uh, we, we didn't have any experience, first of all, in having a company, of course, coming straight out of the university. Uh, we didn't have any customers. Uh, we didn't have any enterprise experience at all uh, working with customers. We were in physics. But um, we were able to code, and we thought that, that was those were the times before um, dot com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, we thought, well, everything is possible. So let's found a company. And um, we, we we heard of stories of people getting rich because uh, they basically were providing web services. That was yeah. it then, right? <laughs> so you so you create this company. How do you actually? you know, without any marketing, sales experience, uh, like all that, how do you go out and find your first customers? So, well, first of all, um, lessons in economics, right? So I read a lot of books. So what does it really mean to, to have um, your own company? Uh, you have to pay taxes, of course. Um, I read a lot. And also the Austrian Chamber of Commerce is really well organized. So they also sent me a lot of material about that. Yeah. And they also help startups to actually cope with the fact that, okay, now you have your own company, you're an entrepreneur. What do you have to expect? And what do we expect from you? So what do mm. we expect from you? My first customers were my friends who had their own companies. And um, luckily, I had some acquaintances and friends who uh, needed IT support or needed to, to build up um, the whole IT infrastructure the company and this was um basically our first um, customers and first gigs yeah and so you were kind of learning as you were doing yeah so it infrastructure was fine we were building computers back then you, you didn't buy a laptop <laughs> these laptops were huge you built your own computers from parts and then we built uh, we, we we bought invested um, built the whole it infrastructure we knew about that already before because we were doing it in um, in the Institute for Solid State Physics already. So we learned it there and then we applied it with our first customers. It's building up a network, um, installing Linux on the server, <laughs> yeah, yeah, connecting it to the internet. Yeah, so you really learned a lot about how all of it comes together, how it all works. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a time um, a hard time, of course, uh, because it was it was learning how to to walk, 
in an area where you have never been before. We also built our own Linux distribution. I don't know if it was, it was, the, if it was the wisest thing to do in that phase, but we still did it because we could. And if you, if you remember back then, there was some Slackware and then came SUSE, uh, Red Hat. And Slackware was basically, you had, you had uh, about 30 or 35 or 40 disks, uh, floppy disks um, that contained the code application. And then um, you had to install it um, and insert yeah. one disk after the other. So those were the times. <laughs> yeah, it sounds quite tedious. Uh, well, before we move on further into your more recent career, what would you say is your best learning from having been an entrepreneur, having been a small business owner? I learned how to be positive. I learned uh, how to be resilient as well, because um, we also had hard times um, when um, we, for example, had a hard year. Uh, in one year, we made a lot of revenue. And in the next year, um, we didn't. Um, because we were more focused on, on coding and building a solution. So we, we were not working on the pipeline, right? So you'd have, you would need a constant influx into your pipeline. And to have that, you have to have someone who's focused on sales. And, that, and, and so, so we got a, a customer and we were building the solution. We were happy that we were getting paid for, for, for that solution. And then uh, there was a phase where you'd have to build up another project again for another customer. And uh, you'd have to build a pipeline of customers, uh, steady customers to do that as well. And we didn't have that. Um, so there was an imbalance with regard um, to the, the revenue that we had from year to year. And the hard, the hard thing was that uh, in, that, in that taxation um, that we had, we had to pay tax for one year. And so we had to pay tax for the good year, but, uh, and that was quite high, but then the next year you didn't have any, any revenue or any earnings. So at one point I thought, oh my goodness, I'd have to pay 40,000, uh, let's say just a number 40,000 euros of tax. And this year, um, we don't have any revenue at all. So I actually need that 40,000. Yeah. So we, um, changed the taxation system from that single year taxation to a double accounting system where okay. you can actually have a, a more, let's say, predictable revenue or tax. Yeah, because of, because it splits the, the revenue of one year to five years, it equals out those phases. Yeah. And, and so from, from that, from, from really the challenges of running a small business, you've moved to a slightly large larger business and you moved to, you moved to Microsoft. Help us place, where was Microsoft at that time? Because yeah. Microsoft has transformed so much in the past decade. Yeah, I was very active in the open source community. And back then Microsoft was not very open towards open source. <laughs> um, IBM was, so um, I remember those times where Microsoft was really having a FUD strategy against uh, open source and the open source community. And in some, let's say, discussions in conferences, I was clearly for open source and for the open source community and against the FUD strategy that Microsoft was following. 
So it was uh, also, a, let's say, um, a surprise to some of my friends who were in the open source community when they heard that I was joining Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, because um, I believe that was also the time where Microsoft changed the strategy and embraced open source. It was a, I remember a, a communication of Steve Ballmer where he stated that some parts of Windows Server will be published open source or at least some customers will gain insight to the source code of Windows Server. And it was uh, clearly changing at that time, not, not entirely, uh, you know, when, when um, uh, Satya actually uh, became CEO, but Microsoft was opening up towards open source back yeah. then ready. Yeah. yeah, my decision to join Microsoft came sudden because I, I wanted to gain enterprise experience. Um, it was not really possible uh, when you have a small company and it was a, a tipping point as well. My, my business partner wanted to, to leave the company and I thought that, okay, um, um, should I invest more in the company to grow it or should I join a large enterprise like Microsoft or Google to learn more and grow there? And now it's been over a decade, I mean, I know you were away for a short stint, but you've been in Microsoft for, for quite a while. What, what keeps you there? Why Microsoft? Uh, let's say Microsoft offers a lot of uh, opportunities and possibilities. And there was not a huge change, you know, from being an entrepreneur to being in Microsoft. Uh, I started in Microsoft services. And um, you're like an entrepreneur within an enterprise. So you, you get your, um, your core priorities, your goals for the year. And then, um, of course, uh, Microsoft will help you to reach those goals, but uh, you can decide how you want to reach them. And I never felt that I, I had uh, managers who actually told me what to do, but it was um, quite an open conversation and I felt not very much differently from being an entrepreneur to being within Microsoft. This is something that I always really appreciated in, in my whole career. And I had changed my role. So I was, I was in Microsoft services and then I joined the enterprise partner group afterwards. So more in, as account technology strategist in, in pre-sales, so technical pre-sales. And uh, I was a cloud solution architect, um, software engineer. Now I'm a software engineering lead. So there are many possibilities to, to explore and many opportunities to, to grow as well. And that's yeah. what's keeping me within Microsoft. And what does your day-to-day -day work look like now? <laughs> In the pandemic? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my day-to-day -day work is, is, is coding with a customer together with my team. I have a team of um, six engineers. We code with a, with a customer, um, either pair programming. So we work together on building a solution on Azure. And the day-to-day -day work is um, similar to those um, of engineers working for a product group. So we have our daily stand-ups, we have our retros, and then we improve on that process um, throughout our engagement with a customer. And then um, we disengage again uh, because we have, let's say, we've reached um, the scope that we've agreed upon with a yeah. customer. And that takes about 
I believe, um, let's say four to six months. It could also take um, a year. And then we disengage and then start with a new project again. Yeah. And I, I know Microsoft Switzerland has a very exciting move planned to a new office space. Has that happened or? Not yet. So that got delayed because of the pandemic as well. Okay. But um, we're planning to to be there in the course of this year, definitely. Yeah, later yeah. this year, maybe in uh, autumn. Okay, great. Cool. And so at this point, I'd like to look back a little bit. I mean, you, you've had uh, quite the life story. And I'm curious, early in your life, who were some people you looked up to and how has that changed over time? I did not have one single role model that I looked up to. Right? I looked up to my mom, of course, because she also had, um, let's say, challenges in her life. And um, she mastered those challenges because she was open to to change. So she, she embraced change and was very resi resilient. And there were, let's say, every time I, I meet a new person and I see a positive trait, I think, hey, cool. That's that's really positive. And and can I also do that? Can I can I change uh, something in me to to um, reflect what I see or what I feel when I see that person? And so I have many many. Uh, I don't have an idol, you know, a person, one single person, but I have many people, uh, many many different personalities as well. But I always tend to see the positive. Uh, in people, and I, I love to see different personalities, and or also interact with different personalities. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great mindset to have, and really that that's what we need in in today's world. I mean, if if there's anything that 2020 taught us is that uh, resiliency is uh, and a positive mindset is super important. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and uh, we can learn from everyone. I always feel we can at least learn what we don't want to emulate when we see things that <laughs> <laughs> yes that is we well. disagree with yeah yes so um we, we 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 can see the positive things and also maybe learn from that uh, and then um, we can um, look at the negative things and, and and learn from that as well um in a sense that this is something that we never want to do yeah That's yeah true. use it as guidance because we have the realization it makes me feel this way but make others feel this way let me not do that. Right, right. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious of the of the many moves you made as a child. I mean, Philippines to Nigeria to the U.S. to Austria. Which one do you feel shaped you the most? They all shaped me. Um, but I believe that the move to Austria shaped me the most because I stayed in Austria for a longer time. Yeah. So if you ever hear me speak in German, you would say, um, "Oh, she has an Austrian accent." And of course, I cherish all the memories that I have from, from Nigeria, from the US, positive or negative, because they shaped me. They made me who I am. But the uh, move to Austria and the time that I spent in Austria shaped me the most, um, because I, I spent almost 30 years there. And then afterwards, I, I moved to Switzerland. Yeah. I, I want to end on the topic of women in tech. I know this is something that you think about, and you're, you're part of the Microsoft Women Employee Resource Group. And you personally are passionate about increasing the percentage of women in tech. You, you've actually, you've written about how as an engineering manager, hiring software engineers, you feel the number of female applicants is very low. What is your thinking? What is your message on how we can improve? That's a very complex topic. <laughs> and you could probably spend hours talking about that. 
And I, I believe there are several levels where we could improve. One of which in the early childhood, right? Supporting girls to be more confident in math, be more confident in science, so STEM in general, giving them the, the, the courage also to take up a study in that or consider that to be their career path because they believe that they can be very good at it. It could start in childhood and then uh, move over to university where we actually also encourage, well, even pre-university where we encourage um, uh, schoolgirls to actually study STEM. So anything in science, technology, mathematics, physics, um, chemistry. And um, as long as that doesn't happen, we cannot increase the numbers yeah. of women, young women studying STEM. So this is something... And um, there are stereotypes, of course, that we can work, we could work on and get rid of yeah. uh, from the beginning. Other than that, um, I'll just um, say, well, encourage young women who just uh, finished their studies to apply for uh, a job, even though they think that, okay, they don't um, fulfill um, three of the criteria requirements for, for that job, right? Not to be insecure because of that, but to, to learn to know what, where their gaps lie yeah. yeah, and get feedback and through constant feedback on what to improve, um, eventually, um, they could get the job that they want. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, a great message to end on as part of season two, I've introduced some rapid fire questions, which are pretty straightforward. All right. So the first one is, and I'm really curious to hear your answer to this. What is the piece of software at work you couldn't live without? Teams. I use it every day as well. Favorite place you've lived in? A favorite place that I've lived in, Vienna. <laughs> and, and favorite coffee house in Vienna? Oh, I haven't been there for a long time. Spell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, it's pronounced Spell. Yeah. But uh, it's written S-P-E-R-L. Okay. And final question, something that you are learning right now or looking forward to learning soon? I'm currently looking into Azure Synapse. <laughs> it's because I've always been interested in data. I've always been interested in AI and also IoT. And I haven't looked into Synapse or let's say in a data related technology for a longer time now, because we always work on what our customers require. And I'm in a generalist dev group and I took it upon myself to study something new always. So my, my new kid on the block is Synapse. <laughs> awesome. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining. It's been such a pleasure. Vijay, thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode. As always, thank you very much for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate a rating and review in your podcast app. Thank you and see you next time.